why is conflict so pervasive? Sadly, we live in a broken world where anger, violence, and hatred seems to be all around us. Uh, We see it on the evening news. Read about it in the morning paper. We feel it in our families. We know its sting within our own hearts. From the armed battles we fight abroad to the war of words that often occupy our own living rooms. Conflict is all around us. Yet even more significant than our violence and enmity towards one another is the conflict we have towards God. From our earliest days, we resist his authority. We throw off his commands, despise his law, and live however we want. So, for example, you you don't have to teach a toddler to throw a fit or to take another kid's toys or even lie. As we grow up, we continue in our rebellion against God. We reject a relationship with him to worship created things instead. Uh, We prefer money and success and health and sex and security and family and respectability and status and a thousand other good things, but we prefer them over the Lord God, the creator of heaven and earth. We don't want him ruling over us. We want to be the authority of our lives. When it comes down to it, the truth is that all of us, if left to our natural desires, would rather live without God. We'll take his gifts, but we're through with him. This morning, we come to Mark chapter 11 as we see Jesus' conflict with the religious leaders of his day come to a head. Well, maybe not quite a head, but it's boiling up to a head. So let me encourage you, if you have a Bible, to turn to Mark chapter 11. Uh, We're going to be taking a pretty big chunk this morning as we go all the way through chapter 12, verse 12. So far in Mark's gospel, we've seen God the Father anoint God the Son with God the Holy Spirit at Jesus' baptism. Uh, Over the past 11 chapters, we've seen Jesus authoritatively heal and teach and work miracles. He's astounded the crowds, infuriated the religious leaders, shown tender compassion to the hurting. Yet many were confused about his mission and identity. Some thought he was an impressive prophet. Others came for dramatic displays of power. Uh, The disciples themselves have often been spiritually blind. In chapter 8, however, Jesus climactically revealed himself to be the Christ, that is the king of Israel. And, And since then, he's been making his way from the far north to Jerusalem, where both his kingship and his suffering would come to fruition. He is Israel's long-awaited Messiah, but he is also the suffering son of man who takes up his cross and gives his life as a ransom for many. He is the king who calls his disciples to follow his example of humility. And so we arrive at Mark chapter 11 this morning. Uh, We'll have four sections, and the main idea of our passage is simply this. The Lord Jesus comes to judge Israel's fruitlessness and to establish God's kingdom for all the nations. The Lord Jesus comes to judge Israel's fruitlessness and to establish God's kingdom for all 
the nations. So we're going to read from chapter 11, verse 1, through chapter 12, verse 12. Just to let you know, this is the best part of the sermon. Okay? So the reading of scripture, this is the best part. Let's look together. Mark chapter 11, beginning in verse 1. Then when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and Bethany, at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it. And we'll send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, what are you doing, untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David! Hosanna in the highest! And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. And they came to Jerusalem. And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. He, and he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when the evening came, they went out of the city. And as they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered them, have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he has says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone, so that your father also who's in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. And they came again to Jerusalem. And he was, as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him. And they said to him, by what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do them? Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question. Answer me and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. And they discussed it with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why then did you not believe him? But if we say from man, they were afraid of the people. For they all held that John really was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, We don't know. And Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority 
I do these things. And he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the wine press and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent to them another servant, and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and him they killed. And so with many others, some they beat and some they killed. He still had one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them saying, they will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him. And the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing. And it is marvelous in our eyes. And they were seeking to arrest him, but they feared the people, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. So they left him and went away. Amen. Well, our first point is found in chapter 11, verses 1 to 11, entitled, Jesus Welcomed. And if you're expecting, you know, conflict and strife right from the get-go, you might be surprised by this first point, right? In verse 1, Jesus and his disciples are finally, after journeying for three chapters now, on the footsteps, the doorsteps rather, of Jerusalem. All along, he's affirmed his kingly identity. Surely the coronation drew near. You notice that Jesus gives strangely specific advice to the two disciples there in verses 2 and 3 about finding a cult and bringing it. Uh, What's the significance of these actions? I think we should notice three things. First, Jesus is in total control. Sometimes people will paint the picture of Jesus as a hapless victim of imperial rule and religious ambition. You know, he's this kumbaya religious teacher. He's just trying to help people out, teach about the kingdom of God. He didn't really know what was going to happen when he arrived in Jerusalem. I think one reason Mark describes Jesus' precise instructions and the precise fulfillment of them in verses 4 through 6 is to show that Jesus is in control. He knows what's going to happen, and he is calling the shots. The second thing we see in Jesus' instructions is an assertion of Jesus' identity. Do you see it at the end of verse 3? If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it. In using this title of Lord, Jesus is using the very title of the God of Israel. So throughout your Old Testament, Yahweh, the God of Israel, is called the Lord. And so here... Jesus is applying that name to himself. Even in this simple act, Jesus is boldly asserting his divine identity. 
And then third and finally, Jesus rides on this colt to fulfill Zechariah 9, what Dave has been helping us to think about, what we've read earlier. Do you remember what Holly read? Again, just turn back to page 7 to look. At the top, verse 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he humble and mounted on a donkey, on the colt, the foal of a donkey. Friends, this prophecy is 500 years old. And it's not by accident coming true. As if they're just walking by and Jesus says, oh, look, a donkey. He hops on it and then, oh my, I guess this fulfills Zechariah 9. No, he deliberately seeks to fulfill it. Notice how different Jesus' kingship is. Rather than riding in on a war horse, Jesus rides in on a humble donkey to cut off the chariot and the bow and the war horse. Now, instead, Zechariah 9.10 says, he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Friends, who is Jesus? That's the question we've been asking for 11 chapters. He is Israel's king. He is her humble king who comes not to destroy the nations, but to speak peace to them, to all who will humbly submit to his kingship. And so you see how the people respond in verses 8 through 10. Shout in verse 9, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. In this we see the crowd recognize and affirm Jesus' claim to kingship uh, by reciting the psalm that we read at the beginning of our service. Psalm 118. Hosanna simply means save us, I pray. And by saying blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David, the crowd understands Jesus to be taking up his father David's throne. The crowd is beginning to understand who Jesus is. You remember, Peter said, you're the Christ. Uh, last week, Bartimaeus said, son of David, have mercy on me. Now the crowd is starting to understand that Jesus is the one who comes in the name of the Lord to establish David's kingdom. And yet, like the disciples, it's not yet clear if they understand exactly what this means. So Jesus enters the city in verse 11, and notice where he goes. He doesn't go to the political offices to take up matters with Pilate. He doesn't go to the open markets or the academic arena. Jesus makes a beeline for the temple. As the king, what was his highest priority? What was the most important item on his agenda? The worship of God. That's what he cared about. That's what he had come to purify and restore. And yet because it's late, Jesus surveys the scene before he retreats for the evening. So let's turn to our second section now in verses 11 to 25 entitled, Jesus Judges. What we're going to find here is one of those famous Markin sandwiches. All right, you remember that? Mark's going to begin a story, 
He's going to interrupt it with a new theme, and then he's going to return to that first story. And the point is that we would understand the beginning and the ending section in light of the middle, and that we'd understand the middle section in light of the beginning and the ending. So in verses 12 to 14, we get the beginning of the story. Jesus and his disciples are returning to the temple in Jerusalem when he sees a fig tree in verse 13, and then curses it after it only has leaves but no figs. Why does he do this if it says it was not the season for figs? Well, in short, if the, the fig tree, if it had leaves on it, it should have had at least the buds of fruit. So Passover's at springtime. At this point, with leaves, the fig tree should have buds that Jesus and his disciples could have munched on. By the point of summer, those would have been full grown. So the point is that it should have begun to bear good fruit, even if it wasn't fully formed fruit. And Jesus curses this fig tree because it doesn't have any. What's the meaning and significance of this event? Well, we're going to see that it's kind of like a living parable. Through this fig tree, Jesus is about to show the barrenness of Israel's worship the fruitlessness of Israel's life. So we come to the middle of the Mark and Sandwich in verses 15 to 19. Notice again, they head straight for the temple. You know, and Jesus' actions are dramatic to the extreme. In verse 15, he begins driving out those who sold animals for the pilgrims to sacrifice. He starts flipping tables and shooing out those profiting off of the worship of God. Uh, in this, we see one of the rare instances where Jesus gets angry. I, I think it's instructive. So, brothers and sisters, it is possible to have righteous anger. Jesus had it. When we encounter sin and suffering and exploitation and abuse in this world, there can be a righteous indignation that we have. Perhaps it's when we are sinned against or when we witness others being taken advantage of. Sin is grievous and worth lamenting and being angry about. However, I would caution us. Well, it definitely is possible to be righteous when angry. I think that the truth is that for most of the time when we are angry, it's not necessarily for righteous and pure reasons. It's because we've been inconvenienced. Because our plans have been frustrated. Notice what Jesus is angry about. Jesus is angry because God is not being worshipped as he should. Friends, does that grieve you? What angers you? My guess is if you're like me, it's most likely not when God is dishonored, but when I am. And, and while Jesus here gets angry, this isn't his default mode of operation, right? You know, for 11 chapters, we've seen Jesus, well, he shows incredible patience and compassion and tenderness. Uh, so let me just say, beware if you make Jesus flip tables your life verse, Okay. There seem to be some Christians these days who want to make that their life verse. Let me advise against it. 
What was the crux of Jesus' complaint against these sellers? You notice it, verse 17. Is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. Friends, why did the temple exist? Why did God institute the temple and the sacrifices and all that went into it? Was it just for Israel? No. It was meant to be a house of prayer for all the nations. That is, in reaching out to Israel, God had set his sights on way more than just Israel. Israel didn't exist for their own sake, but for the nation's sake. Remember what God had told Abraham. I'm going to bless you, and all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed in you and in your offspring. His people were to be a blessing in part by being a prayerful people, praying for all the nations. Trinity Church of Bedford, this is why we devote so much time to prayer. We understand that God has called his people to pray because it glorifies him. You know, as we praise him, we revel in who he is and what he's done for us in Christ. As we confess our sins, we glorify him as we recognize the ways we've fallen short of his character. When we come to God for help, it glorifies him when we we ask for things, showing that we are dependent and he is dependable. And God's house is specifically meant to be a place of prayer for all the nations, Uh, This is part of the reason why in every pastoral prayer, you'll note, uh, we always pray for one unreached people group and one nation of the world. Uh, We understand that in God bringing the gospel to us, he doesn't intend for us to keep it. He wants for us to take part in bringing it to the ends of the earth. And so one of the ways we do that is by praying. That's one of the reasons why on Sunday nights, we've begun praying through the different uh, nations of the world, Afghanistan, Albania, Algeria tonight. We are to be the means that all the nations would come to love God's kingdom. Yet sadly, this was not true for Israel. Instead, the temple had become a racket. And so rather than repenting at Jesus' teaching, you see how the religious leaders respond in verse 18. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him. For they feared him. Friends, when Jesus calls you out on your sin, which do you side with? Your sin or your Savior? And so they go out of the city at evening, and then we get the conclusion to this marking sandwich in verses 20 to 27. You look there at verse 20. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look. The fig tree that you cursed has withered. Why has Mark framed the cleansing of the temple with the story of this fruitless fig tree? Well, in short, it's that the fruitless fig tree represents fruitless Israel. Though they were supposed to bear good fruit to God, when Jesus came to the temple, he found only wickedness and greed and corruption. 
And so the result is, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. As our final section will show in just a few moments, Israel will forfeit their role in salvation history because of their lack of fruit. And and so what's the opposite of fruitless Israel? You know, how should we live instead? It's just what Jesus mentions in verses 22 to 25. Uh, First, have faith in God. Have faith in God. That's really the rub of the matter, isn't it? Israel didn't trust the Lord. Right? This was, this was evident, like, on day one. You remember, God saves them out of, Israel, out of Egypt. What's, like, the first thing they do? They start complaining and not trusting, not having faith in God to provide for them. Say, where's our bread? Where's our water? God, you will not care for us. We don't have faith in you. It continued with the golden calf. It happened for hundreds and hundreds of years as Israel pursued idol worship rather than trusting in the one true and living God to provide for their needs. This is the faith that Jesus has been commending throughout Mark's gospel. It means coming to God in our trials and questions rather than running away from him. It means submitting to his sometimes difficult providences. It means loving Jesus for who he truly is. How does that faith express itself? Well, that's the second thing we see. Uh, We should pray bold, faith-filled prayers. Brothers and sisters, your prayers reveal your understanding of God. Is he a small God who can only do small things? Is he a mean and harsh master who ignores or begrudges the cries of his people? As verses 23 and 24 show, uh, Jesus states it in, in typical Jewish hyperbole and overstatement. We should pray in faith, not in doubt. What do your prayers reveal about your understanding of God? And then third, in verse 25, shows us uh, we should forgive others. How hypocritical for us Christians who have been forgiven so lavishly and graced so generously to then be stingy and bitter towards others. You know, what expectation should we have of being forgiven by our Father in heaven if we are totally unwilling to forgive others? Beloved, if your life is marked by serious unforgiveness of others. It might be evident. It might be evidence that you yourself have not been forgiven by God. That's what Jesus wants us to learn from the cursing of the fig tree and fruitless Israel. Let's turn to our third section now, entitled Jesus questioned in verses 27 to 33. As we begin to see Jesus' conflict with the religious leaders begin to really boil over. Jesus arrives again at the temple, and then the whole consortium of Jewish religious leaders approach Jesus. This would have been the Sanhedrin, the rulers of Israel. You see there are two questions there in verse 28. 
By what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do them? You see, these are the religious elites. They were the authority in that day. And they didn't like this. Upstart, itinerant rabbi. I mean, who did he think he was? They hadn't authorized him. So who had? Who gave him the authority to do what he was doing? Jesus was seemingly in a tight spot. He responds brilliantly, doesn't he? Anytime you think you've got Jesus cornered, that's when you're in trouble. Like many rabbis of his day, Jesus responded to a question with a question. And if the religious leaders adequately answered Jesus' question, he would answer theirs. So in verse 30, he asks them, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? You see, Jesus flips their question on its head by asking them where John got his authority from. That's what, that's what the connection Jesus is making. Where did John get his authority? And why does Jesus push them on this particular issue? Because the key to understanding Jesus and his ministry lay in his baptism by John and the Father's pronouncement there. If you want to understand Jesus, look at his baptism by John and the Father's pronouncement. You know, if John's baptism was mere human ritual, then Jesus is a nobody. But if John's baptism was of a heavenly origin, well, then the Father's endorsement of Jesus at his baptism settles the matter. He is God's beloved son. He represents heaven on earth. And now the religious leaders are the ones in a bind, right? Because verses 31 and 32 show us they were in trouble whichever way they answered. If they say John's baptism was from heaven, well, Jesus would have rebuked them for not believing and obeying him. But if the religious leaders said John's baptism was of man-made authority, well, that would offend the crowds and possibly lead to their death. Their fear of man puts them in an impossible situation. So friends, this is another reminder that the fear of man is a snare. If you want to fall into sin and hypocrisy and deceit and disobedience, a really good way to begin all that is to care too much about other people's opinions. To care more about other people's opinions of you than you do about Christ's opinion of you. And so they respond in verse 33. We don't know. And Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. These relig religious leaders weren't genuinely seeking the truth, and so it should, know, should come as no surprise that Jesus conceals the truth from them. The reality is that they just didn't want his way of doing things. His insistence on love and holiness, prayer and faith in God, 
they were never really interested in the truth of Jesus' identity. And so, friends, know for certain that God will not reveal his truth to you until you come to him in humility, genuinely seeking his will. Uh, perhaps you're here this morning, you're not a Christian. Let me encourage you to search the scriptures, but to do so not with an axe to grind. Not like the scribes and the chief priests and the elders who came with an agenda, trying to force Jesus into their mold, trying to find a Jesus that fit their desires. Don't try to find fault so that you can rebuff his authority. You know, if you come to God's word with a hidden agenda, trying to twist his words, you can be sure that you will receive only riddles and confusion. Instead, if you come to him with humility and faith, asking him to sincerely reveal himself to you, well, that is a prayer that God loves to answer. And thus we come to our final section. In chapter 12, verses 1 to 12, entitled, Jesus Opposed and Victorious. In verse 1 we read, And he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the winepress and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. Now when Jesus began to tell this story, immediately the ears of, of all his listeners would have perked up because he was clearly alluding to probably the second most famous parable in the Old Testament, that of Isaiah 5. Isaiah 5, beginning in verse 1. You can write that down, look at it later. Isaiah 5, verse 1, it reads, Let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it, and he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. Uh, this imagery refers to Israel as the vineyard, the nation. And so in Isaiah, God goes to great lengths to describe the many blessings he had given to this field so that Israel, the vineyard, would bear good fruit. But does it bear good fruit? No, it bears bitter fruit. Though it had every advantage conceivable, from walls to choice vines to being on a fertile hill, yet it still bore bitter fruit. And it's to this story that Jesus is alluding. But he adds something to it. He adds the element that a man leased it to tenants. <clears throat> because he's commenting not just on Israel's failure as the vineyard to bear good fruit, but he specifically wants to zero in on the wicked leaders of Israel who were supposed to care for and cultivate that vineyard. And so the story is simple enough, right? In verses 2 to 5, we see the owner has the reasonable expectation that he enjoys some fruit from all his hard work. But the tenants are unwilling. They refused and beat and then killed the servants the master 
sent. Before we get to the climactic verses of 6 through 9, we should note two things in these verses 2 to 5. You know, first, consider how wicked these tenants are. They were only stewards of the land. They acted as though they owned it. They rebelled against the rightful owner of the land. They rejected his rightful rule over them. Uh, Second, consider the immense patience of this man. You know, if we were running the show, perhaps we would decry this man for being foolish, for continually sending these servants in, right? I mean, hasn't he learned his lesson? Won't he just give up on them? They're obviously too far gone. Yet the picture that Jesus paints is one of a patient and long-suffering, even forgiving man. What does all this symbolize? Just as in Isaiah's parable, it symbolizes Yahweh's relationship with Israel, Israel's relationship with the Lord. For it was the Lord who saved Israel from slavery in Egypt and bestowed on them every conceivable blessing, He gave them the land. He gave them his law, his promises, his warnings, his leaders, his temple, his presence, and countless other kindnesses. Yet Israel rejected his rule. They spurned his commands. From the golden calf at Mount Sinai onward, Israel was marked by idolatry and turning away from the Lord. And so what did he do? Well, he sent prophets He called them to return. He warned them of future judgment. He pleaded with them that they repent and bear good fruit. Time and again, the Lord showed great patience and forbearance. Time and again, he put away their sins and overlooked their transgressions. Yet Israel would not repent. Instead, they dove deeper and deeper into their sin, and they persecuted the prophets. So, for example, in 2 Chronicles 36, we read, The Lord, the God of their fathers, sent persistently to them by his messengers, because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. But they kept mocking the messengers of God, despising his words and scoffing at his prophets. Such was Israel's relationship with the Lord. And so what happens next? Look at verse 6. Jesus continues, He had still one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them saying, They will respect my son. Friends, does the beloved son sound familiar? It's exactly how God the Father has described Jesus Christ at his baptism and on the Mount of Transfiguration. He is his highest treasure and his deepest delight. And as the Father sent the beloved son to the vineyard owners, God the Father has sent Jesus on a rescue mission to cause his people to bear good fruit. Yet how did Israel respond? 
how did her leaders respond? Verse 7. But the tenants said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him out and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. Notice, the tenant farmers didn't kill the son because they didn't know who Jesus was, but because they did. This is the heir. I want his inheritance. The scribes and the chief priests and the elders, they wanted to rule Israel. They didn't want Jesus around. They didn't want to submit to him, and so they conspired to kill him. In this, the farmers, the religious leaders, were a lot like Adam and Eve, weren't they? They wanted what the Lord rightfully had as his. And they said, I want it as mine. They couldn't stand to submit to God's authority that he would dare withhold something from them. And so they sought to seize his prerogatives. Friends, this is the heart of sin. That we throw off the authority of God and we seek to rule our lives independently of him. This is all our problem. Not that we don't know who God is and what he requires of us, but that we do know and we don't like it. And so we too conspire to usurp his authority. And yet, beloved, there is one massive difference between God's beloved son, Jesus, and the son in this parable. It's that the parabled son has no idea what's coming to him. But for Christ, he knew that his words would affect this very outcome. Because Christ had set his face toward the cross, where he would die for the sins of his people, giving his life as the ransom price for the sins of many. And thus the irony is that while the tenant farmers thought they were establishing their independence through murder, Jesus' opponents were fulfilling his plan through their opposition. They were rather accomplishing the purposes of God and the death of the Son of God. Because this was God's plan, because this wasn't the end of the story. Right? The parable doesn't end in verse 8, but verse 9. I'm going to translate it a little bit more literally than ESV does. Anyone have a King James version in here? Okay. I'm, more, I'm closer to the King James here. Look at verse 9. I'm going to change one word. What will the Lord of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Okay, friends, I love the ESV. It's great. I've been using it for a decade. Let me encourage you to keep using the ESV. But here, Jesus doesn't just say, what will the owner of the vineyard do? 
He says, what will the Lord of the vineyard do? And why is that significant? Because how had Jesus described himself earlier to his disciples when they were getting the colt? You remember? The Lord has need of it. I have need of it. Friends, who is Jesus? He is the beloved son of God and the very Lord of Israel, the God of Israel. And thus, Jesus' story does not end with his death being thrown outside the temple courts, outside the city of God. No. What does verse 9 say? The Lord of the vineyard will come. After Jesus died, he didn't stay buried in the tomb, but he rose. And having risen, one day he will come back. And we await that day when the Lord Jesus will come and split the heavens, when he will return just as he says he will. And when he returns, he will come and do two things, according to verse 9. First, he will destroy the tenants. And so, friends, make no mistake about it. Jesus is the Lord of history. He is the Lord of heaven and earth. And he will come to judge Israel and Israel's leaders and all those who reject God's rightful rule in their lives. And he will destroy them. Second, he will give the vineyard to others. That is, the covenant priority that the Jews previously enjoyed would be taken away. The covenant blessings that they enjoyed would be removed. And they would be given to others. Because Israel had failed in its task to be a house of prayer for all the nations, God was removing the favored status from Israel and giving it to all the nations, to all those who will repent of their sins and trust in Christ. Uh, now, God's people isn't found in a building in Jerusalem. It's not found in ethnic or biological lineage. It's found in all of those who confess Jesus is Lord. This is why we want all people everywhere to believe in Christ. We understand that God's salvation is not limited to one people group. Jesus is Israel's king. And so you might think, okay, well then only Jews, only Israelites should believe in, should believe in and submit to his kingship. Wrong. All people everywhere all nations should submit to him because he's not only the king of Israel, he is the king of creation. He is the Lord of the world. He offers pardon and forgiveness for all who will trust in his sacrificial death on the cross and his victorious resurrection from the grave. Yet this wasn't some new doctrine Jesus was preaching. That's why in verse 10 he cites... Psalm 118, the very psalm the crowds had recited just a few days prior. It says, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. In short, God had planned this all along. For the old temple, 
and with the existing Jewish leaders, Jesus would be rejected. But in this rejection, Jesus would then become the cornerstone of a new temple, a new people, the church made up from all nations. And so our passage concludes in verse 12. As the scribes and chief priests sought to arrest Jesus. For they perceived that he had told the parable against them. Friends, Jesus was headed to the cross. It wasn't because he was a naive neophyte to the world of realpolitik. Nor is it because the religious leaders were ignorant of who he truly is. Rather, as the beloved son of God, he had come to die. As the Lord of Israel and Lord of history, he was headed to his enthronement at the cross of Calvary. Let's pray.